Hey kitchen nerds, welcome back. It's your girl, Nicole. Um, <laughs> I started doing a little video project this week and realized I don't actually introduce myself, which is um, a little weird now that I think about it. So, hello. Um, hi, nice to officially formally meet you. Uh, my name is Nicole. I just a few fun facts um, you know what we'll save it for the video because we have a YouTube channel now check us out blender kitchen on YouTube links are always gonna be on our website I'm always on our social media we actually have a Facebook page now which is super exciting um, <laughs> just like a lot of things coming up we're becoming like a real podcast guys it's episode 18 you know, we, we're here to bring you quality, well-researched content with very little vocal fry, no breathlessness, and no white noise. I'm just kidding. All of those things because, come on, you know what, you know what you're here for. You know what it is. Um, I will try to keep some of the white noise down to the minimum, but it's really hot here in New York. Um, almost 90 degrees today, so I have the AC running full blast. Um, and as a, as an as asthmatic, whew, I try to keep cool. Uh, but I was literally just outside before I sat down to record this, so I might be a little breathless. I'm sorry about that. Um, I can't think of any other announcements. Oh, um, yeah, we would love to hear from you. I would love nothing more than to hear from our audience. If you could drop us a line on our Facebook or at our email, you know, what topics do you want to hear about? What are you interested in in learning about? Of course, right as I start recording, Freya decides it's time for a bone snack on the wooden floor. So I do apologize about that ominous rumbling in the background. Um... Without further ado, let's get into it. This week, we've got a hefty, hefty, hefty episode. Um, so I think next week, we're going to go with something that's kind of light on history, maybe a little bit of a shorter episode, just because of how much went into this. Um, but it, this was really fun, honestly. Um, it was delicious. Uh, it was so interesting. It's something I had never really thought about, but once I started digging into it, I was like, oh, yes, I did kind of always want to know this. So, it's Independence Day here in America coming up, 4th of July. Sense of patriotism, you know, uh, sense of joy in our differences, and why not touch on anything better that celebrates our differences than apple pie. So I wasn't quite sure how I wanted to break up these sections, um, but I listened to an excellent uh, podcast episode also on the history of apple pie from Saver Podcasts, and they kind of split it up perfectly into history of apples, history of pie, history of apple pie. And I thought, you know, why reinvent the wheel? That's a perfect way. And so that's kind of how we're going to break it down today. Um, 
little bit of a different focus here than on the Saver podcast, but do give that a listen. It's going to going to drop that um, on the research page on the website because it was really informative. And honestly, those hosts are just amazing. You know, a lot of great play back and forth together. But we have a long one ahead of us. So buckle in, boys and girls <clears throat> and our non-binary pals. Um, let's talk origin of apples. So apples originated in the Tian Shan Mountains in Kazakhstan. Um, not quite sure which people specifically domesticated them, but as we'll talk about later, uh, one of the reasons that's kind of hard to see is because apples basically hold on to whatever genetic code that they happen to look at. Um, and just because you get an apple and you ha- it's got all these different genetic codes, it's kind of like difficult to pinpoint exactly where it's coming from. But we're, I'm getting ahead of those. So how did, for those of you who don't know where Kazakhstan is, it's kind of like, it's part of that like vague part of the continent that we call Eurasia, like sort of Russia, but also sort of China, but also sort of Middle Eastern, just like the dead center of that continental mass. That's where you can find Kazakhstan. So, how do you make it from there to America? Well, it's a long road, a very long road, by way of the Silk Road. Um, not quite sure who first brought it. Some think Alexander the Great. My mind, I want to say Marco Polo, but that's completely unfounded. I have no basis of that. If anyone can, you know, provide some solid fact to that, let me know, because I think that would be fascinating to look in on. So it traveled down through the Silk Road from Kazakhstan to Europe, where it became an important food source during the winter. Um, at that time, you had the Malice Servisal, essentially a wild apple. Now, as the apple is making its way from Kazakhstan to Europe, it's picking up genes from every crab apple in every country that it passes through. Um, distinctly, we can tell that it picked up genes from crab apples out of Serbia, out of the Caucasus Mountains region, and then just Europe generally. In fact, the Chinese soft apple, an apple that's um, cultivated today for its dessert, um, Properties is thought to be a cross between um, Malice Diversi and Malice Bacata. So, generally, how I think that must have worked is you know, starts out in Kazakhstan, travels to the Silk Road, gets to China. The soft apples essentially stay in China, become cultivated, domesticated as, as dessert apples, and then the apple continues its road through to Europe, where we get what we think of as the modern apple. Um, Apples early on weren't exactly what we think of today. They were much smaller. They were what we might call dwarf apples today. Um, So much closer to the the crab apple than our traditional apple. Um, But how did it cross the ocean? 
let me tell you, the same way many of our other non-American favorites on this podcast have, and that is the Pilgrims brought it. Seems strange. You thought I was going to say Columbus there, didn't you? No, the Pilgrims brought over apples. Um, They brought over cuttings and seeds from Europe, but apple trees take a really long time to grow and an even longer time to bear any fruit. And these apples had kind of a rough start in life. They didn't really start growing for a while because there weren't European honeybees to colonize them. So apple trees really started flourishing um, in America once they shipped over European honeybees. And this was like the 1600s. So imagine, if you will, let us go into the land of imagination. You are a humble sailor. You've been tasked with loading cargo onto this wooden ship. It's angry cartons. Just a very angry buzzing sound. And you ask the harbor master what could possibly be in these packages. And he calmly tells you that it's bees. Oh, bees. Bound for the American colonies. You know, just uh, your everyday live cargo. Uh, completely harmless bees. Like, can you imagine? And also, that's that's such a rough trip. You know, wine turned to vinegar. Cake had to be heavily salted or uh, sugared. But, like, bees made it over just fine, which I find fascinating. Hey, if anyone has the 411 on bee culture... Hit me up. Let's talk about that. That's something I want to dive into. That seems fascinating. But I digress. So um, once the European honeybees made it over, apples really started flourishing. But in the meanwhile, there were still the native apples, which were not exactly what we might think of edible. The only apple native to American land, that's Canada, North America, Central America, Mexico, uh, as far as I know, I'm assuming also South America, but they didn't really bring up South America in my research. Anyway, it's crab apples. These were extremely sour, not good for eating, and typically used to make cider. Now, cider was a recipe that had been brought over also by the pilgrims because they were used to making cider with crab apples where they were originally from. Drinking water often was not good for you. It um, contained heavy metals or sometimes just raw sewage. And so it was often safer to drink cider, which had been brewed, later pasteurized. Um, but, you know, all the germs had been killed off and it to the point it became so much safer to drink hard cider than actual water that they even had a diluted version that they would give to children, which is just mind-boggling. Um, oh, quick tidbit. For those of you who are wondering where the first apple orchard was planted, it was Boston. That has nothing to do with the rest of this conversation. I just thought it was neat and I wanted to throw it in there. So, while the pilgrims are waiting for the apple trees they brought over to bear fruit, 
Meanwhile, they're making jams, they're making spreads, they're making cider for drinking. I'm sure that you don't just quickly leave behind a distrust of water. Um, So they probably continued to make cider as they would have in their native countries. But also, there was the idea that the colonists brought over with them that in order to maintain your land grant, your stake of stolen land, come on, you guys had to see that coming. You know, I can't mention the beginnings of America and not remind us exactly what the beginnings of America are. Um, But in order to stake your stolen land claim, you had to, quote unquote, improve it. Um, either by building a house or planting it or clear-cutting it, which is seen as an improvement in those days. Um, or you could it could be taken back. Now, I'm going to quickly put down my historian hat and pick up my lawyer hat. I know you guys didn't come here for law. Uh, but I have a law degree. For those of you who didn't know, I do have a Juris Doctor. And I, when I saw this little bit about quote-unquote improving the land, I immediately thought of an idea that is still in our legal system called adverse possession. Most people know this term as squatter's rights. Essentially, years and years and years and years and years and years later, we still have the idea in our system of government that if you come into some land and you live there for a a certain period of time um the average is anywhere between seven and ten years and you essentially treat the property like you own it you know you take up the weeds you fix the house when it needs fixing or if it's unimproved land you build a house or you build a well in in some such manner um and everyone in the neighborhood except for the landowner knows that um, you're living there, treating the land like your own, Um, it's assumed that the landowner could have also come by and saw that you were treating their land like yours and kicked you off of it. And then it's yours after, you know, the statutory period, anywhere between seven to 10 years. Um, And this idea came from a man they called Johnny Appleseed. Thank you for sticking around for that long minute. I know this is an illegal podcast, but I really love geeking out. Thanks. So, who's Johnny Appleseed? Johnny Appleseed is an American folk hero who's based off of a real man whose name was John Chapman. Sorry, I needed to double check my notes. Yes, the real man's name was John Chapman. But... Let's set the let's set reality aside for a brief moment. Walk with me into a fairy tale. Lewis and Clark are navigating the Missouri River, the Mississippi River. <laughs> the Mississippi River, not the Missouri River. And you know, anyone can can make a life for themselves here by the sweat of their brow and treaties that we won't get into because I think we've covered it enough for one episode. One hard-working man comes along in his overalls, a bindle thrown over his back, a beaver skin hat upon his head, barefoot. As he walks, he sings, 
and sows apple seeds. He travels from one end of the country to the other end of the country, sowing apple seeds for the benefit of mankind. And that is Johnny Appleseed. Now, let's just dip right back into actual history. John Chapman took, would buy, would, hmm, I'm unsure what the proper terminology is here. Uh, uh, let's use acquire. John Chapman would acquire parcels of land, improve them by planting apple orchards, wait until the trees had matured, and then resell the land for much higher profit. And I think that's really why we continue to look up to him as, you know, an American hero, because that's entrepreneurialism at its best. You know, you you put in the hard work and you waited. It's basically like flipping houses. Um, I know that sounded super sarcastic, but when I found out, like, the true history behind Johnny Appleseed, I, that's incredibly ingenious for that day and age, you know? I don't think there were a lot of people thinking, ha I will resell this land for twice its value. And if there were, please tell me. I would like to know more about those people. That's interesting stuff to learn. So anyway, um, Johnny Appleseed sowed apple orchards, but he also sold, sowed a lot of crab apples um, because that was more useful for people at that time. First of all, crab apple trees mature much, much faster. And people were using crab apples for cider. So it makes sense that he would, he would plant something to be used uh, more immediately than apples. Now, along with their cargo of live angry bees and their apple saplings, the pilgrims brought with them the recipe for apple pie. But before we can get directly into apple pie, let's just have a brief look at pie in general. So, it's unclear when exactly the first recipe for pie came around. It's basically been around forever. Presumably, it was invented in around the medieval period, just because of the English source of the word pie. Pie comes from the word magpie, um, and magpies were known for basically putting odds and bits of little, a little bit of everything, um, kind of like crows, into their nests. And the early pies were really just little bits of uh, meat, you know, whatever leftover bits of meat that you had, you would seal it into this carton and you would cook it for later. So, what makes a pie a pie? According to our friend Wikipedia, a pie is a baked dish made of pastry dough that contains either a sweet or savory filling. But, for a long time, pies only contained a savory filling, and that was just due to lack of access to sugar or other natural sweeteners. Um, in fact, the... First, pies were completely inedible in terms of crust. It was akin to clay and less like pastry. So essentially, early pies were made from pie dough, but it was a mixture of flour and water that essentially created clay. 
Um, whereas pastry dough today is, we define pastry today as dough plus butter or lard. Early pies were known as coffins, um, which sounds incredibly dark, but really it's just old English for basket or box. And this refers to the fact that pies were often uh, square with a lid and completely sealed in. Um, pies without lids were called traps, <laughs> which I thought was funny. <laughs> um, and this, all of this goes back to the fact that most things were made in some kind of cast iron pot that you can hang over the fire. Most things are stews or, or stew-like. Um, anything baked in an oven that was not bread was pie. And bread was baked on typically hot, flat stones around the hearth where you were making a stew. Um, and pies were fired in essentially what was a kiln or something that you would also fire pottery in. Um, in terms of uh, time management and energy efficiency, pies were fantastic because, yes, you're making today's stew fresh, but you want to make something that they can take with them. You just take the odd little bits that you didn't put in the stew and you put them in the pie and you cook the pie and now you have something that is easy to go and also well-preserved. Before refrigeration or canning, I don't believe before salting, didn't really get into that, but I imagine this is a, a nice refresher to something salted. Um, pies were an excellent way of preserving food. They were also a mobile food. Um, stew had to be cooked fresh. They didn't really have great receptacles for carrying stew into the forest. Pies allowed you to bring food with you that was not heavily salted or just dry bread. So you could stay out in the field way longer, you know, hunting, traveling from place to place. So really, uh, pie increased the mobility of people in general. Um, back to that inedible crust. The crust was usually several inches thick and, as I said, totally sealed off and square-shaped. Um, I did some neat renderings of what I thought this might look like based on descriptions that I read, and I'm going to throw that up on the Instagram. Um, someone in my research suggested that the pies were not totally inedible, um, as it didn't make sense to have a food stuff that you could eat all of it. Um, but I present to you trenchers. If you, uh... Harken back to our bread episode. Trenchers were essentially bowls made of inedible bread. It was very, very coarse, extremely hard, unflavorful. And the only people that would eat it were people who could not afford to eat anything else. It also was not practical to eat your trencher. Because then what are you going to use the next day or the next week for food? You basically used your trencher until it began to mold and then you broke it up and you fed it to the pigs. I imagine that pie crusts were used in a similar way. You crack the top off, you eat the insides, you bring the uh, coffin come trap back to your abode where it's refilled with uh, stew or, or bits of meat 
and resealed, refired, and taken out again until it begins to crack and is no longer of use. So, <laughs> I guess that's just a long way of saying I stand by the fact that it was inedible. And it did make sense to have an inedible, quote-unquote, foodstuff. We do that all the time now. <laughs> I don't understand. Uh, I don't see why it would be a new concept to us. Uh, anyway, moving on. Um, oh, look at that. We're at the part of our programming where we have begun to explore edible pies. So, um, not quite sure when we began to add butter or lard to dough to create pastry, but we did. Starting in the 1400s, pies sometimes contained live songbirds, sometimes also uh, deceased songbirds. Either way, it was considered a delicacy, although I do want to note that pies that contained live songbirds were not for eating, they were for entertainment. Apparently, that was a huge thing. You would have an entire course of the meal that was just made to delight you and entertain you and was in no way made to be food. Does anyone remember the song or children's rhyme Four and Twenty Blackbirds? No? It's time for another literary moment. So I tried to find who exactly wrote this rhyme first, but it's just attributed to Mother Goose, who herself is a vague character of history. Um, could, she could be an amalgamation of seven women, of several women, or just a single woman who wrote children's rhymes. But anyway, way back in the day, Mother Goose wrote, sing a song of sixpence, a pocket full of rye, four and twenty blackbirds baked into a pie. When the pie was opened, the birds began to sing. Wasn't that a dainty dish to set before the king? The king was in the counting house, counting out his money. The queen was in the parlor, eating bread and honey. The maid was in the garden, hanging out the clothes. And along came a blackbird and snipped off her nose. And then it just ends. <laughs> we don't find out if the maid got her nose back, although apparently some versions have her getting her nose back. Um, sometimes it's, there's a little bit of a moral, like it's a naughty child that has their nose snipped. But anyway, this is a real practice that happened. So, being that it's extremely time-consuming and delicate work to trap songbirds, together and then fold a pie over them. Um, the pie was baked first. I feel like I should say it was like a whole thing. Um, it makes sense that this is a dish basically only served to royalty. The first fruit pie was served in the 1500s to Queen Elizabeth I. It was a cherry pie. Pies at that time still weren't as sweet as we might have think of them today. They were generally sweetened with honey as sugar was still very expensive and hard to come by. However, uh, pies increased in sweetness as time went on and the triangle trade increased. Super brief overview. It is supposed to be a happy episode, so I don't want to get too much into this. But essentially, the triangle trade, which 
exchange um, sugar and coffee, which were produced by forced slave labor for actual slaves, um, which brought the price down of both sugar and coffee and allowed it to be more widely available. It's a terrible practice um, that has so many far-reaching implications, but for our purposes here in today's episode, it made sweetened pies more widely available because sugar was more widely available and it didn't cost $50 a pound anymore. So when the pilgrims bought their pie recipes um, with them, they were able to bring more of a uh, sweetened pie. Um, the Pennsylvania Dutch brought the practice of putting spices into pie. The French brought the use of butter instead of lard in the pastry dough. Swedish brought fish and berry pie recipes. Uh, I'm pretty sure those are separate kinds of recipes, but who knows? Uh, lingonberries and fish are often served together in Sweden, so I'm told. And the Finnish brought hand pies. So we can thank the Finnish for the recipe that allows us to have a hot McDonald's apple pie on a cold winter morning. So even though sugar was becoming more widely available, more widely used, some regions of the United States continued to use methods of sweetener uh, that they had previously used um, as they developed, well, regional recipes. In the South, molasses, also a product of um, the triangle trade, were used to sweeten pot, were, was, is molasses plural or singular? Anyway, molasses sweetened pies made of pecan and sweet potato. Pecans and sweet potatoes were uh, plentiful in the South and it was easy to find. Um, and that's essentially the entire ingredients of those pies. Molasses plus pecan equals pecan pie. Molasses plus sweet potato equals sweet potato pie. In the north, um, maple syrup was used to sweeten uh, their regional pie. It's from what I could not believe that this pie recipe exists, but apparently there's a pie called a maple syrup pie, which is literally just maple syrup, flour, and eggs. Which, honestly, I'm not knocking it. That sounds fantastic. In the Midwest, uh, because there was a lot of, of dairy farms, they lean towards dairy-based pies, which tend to not be as sweet and don't require as much sugar as other pies, like cherry pie. In the 1870s, uh, pies began to fall out of favor because of nutritional concerns. Um, they thought, you know, pies would make you weak. Pies would make you fat. Pies would make you lazy. Um, and really began to fall out of favor. Or, this is what pamphlets say, but industrialization also increased during this time, meaning that there were more women in the workforce. And since there were more women in the workforce, there were less pies being baked due to um, gender roles. Uh, you know, it was thought that even though the women were in the workforce, they were still responsible for making and providing uh, food for their family. And with working and cooking, you have less time for intensive tasks such as pie baking. And so pies fell out of favor. But in the 1950s, with the industrialization of food, we see a resurgence of our friend 
the pie. Um, with uh, pies being made frozen and readily available, anybody could make pie by expending very little time and energy, or money for that matter. And then in the 1980s, um, as all things, I guess, in the 80s, we see a resurgence of older pie recipes and a movement of cross-cultural pies. So really just embracing pie and all its wonderfulness and making new pie recipes from old pie recipes, putting mayonnaise where it shouldn't go, and just all kinds of wildness. But, huh, thanks for sticking with me through two different brief histories. Let's get into the history that we really came here for, which is American apple pie. Like so many other things in this episode, we're not quite sure exactly when apple pie was invented or who invented it. Um, it's probably the Dutch. The Dutch definitely invented the lattice crust, um, which we'll get into later. But it was definitely one of the earlier pie recipes. One of the earliest recipes that we can find uh, was written in 1381. It called for saffron to color the crust and entire whole apples, which, as we said earlier, were smaller than today's apples. But still, that's like the entire apple man, core, skin, everything into the pie. The first American pie recipe um, was not, again, not exactly sure when it was developed, but it was published in 1796 by Amelia Simmons when she published the first American cookbook. Um, there are so many different kinds of pie, and there isn't really one type that prevails over another in America, so I thought we'd get into just the differences between different kinds of apple pie. So the typical American pie can be eaten hot, cold, by itself, or with ice cream, which it's then called um, apple pie a la mode, um, with whipped cream, with custard, or with cheddar or American cheese, which is super popular back in the Midwest. I've personally never tried it. I'm not a fan. Um, when the pie is being assembled, the apples are typically thick sliced, shaped in a dome, and, and sweetened so that when the pie cooks, the apples will shrink downward on into themselves and you won't have a heavily towering pie crust. Um, it is then topped with a butter or lard pastry dough and baked until the apple filling is cooked. Dutch pies um, are just an entire day's worth of cooking. Buckle in. This recipe goes hard. So, Dutch apple pie is actually baked in a Dutch oven, which in Dutch is referred to as a broodpan, uh, which literally just means roasting pan. And it's the Dutch oven that we think of in America. Um, it's uh, well insulated, usually made of cast iron with a tight fitting lid. And when you bake a pie in it, it has this effect of essentially creating a double walled cooking vessel because uh, you're baking the pie in a small oven and then you put the small oven into a larger oven, um, which science says bakes it well. I didn't really get into that. Anyway. The recipes for Dutch apple pie go back to the Middle Ages. It uses a standard pie crust, um, which, as we discussed earlier, is dough plus butter or lard. Uh, 
typically uses soft apples with the skins and seeds removed. Um, baked into a Dutch oven. Then you cut off the top crusts, but you leave the side. You leave like the edges. You put the filling through a sieve and you stir what's left of the pie with a wooden spoon. It was very specific about it being a wooden spoon. Add cardamom, ginger, cinnamon, nutmeg, clove, mace, and powdered sugar. I had to look up what mace was. Apparently, it's the red outer shell of nutmeg. Uh, then you add cream. You mix it again. You bake it again. And you add, this time, a new top. Because remember, you've cut off the old top and discarded it. There are two major kinds of tops that are used for Dutch apples pie. A lattice top, which is called an apple tot in Dutch. Or a crumb or schussel top, which is called an apple klimotout in Dutch. In the U.S., any apple pie that has a streusel top is referred to as a Dutch apple pie. The French have to be fancier, so their pie is called a tasse tatine. Um, it's essentially upside-down apple pie. You put the filling first in, then you cover it with pastry, you bake it, and you flip it over before serving. Uh, the Swedish make something more of a um, streusel. It's a crumb crust top and bottom, but the breadcrumbs, uh, the crumb crust is made with breadcrumbs instead of flour. Um, sometimes also rolled oats instead of flour. And the most interesting apple pie that I read of is a mock apple pie. Um, it was probably invented for use on ships um, when apples were hard to come by because it was known, this recipe was known to the British Royal Navy as early as 1812. However, the earliest published recipe was in the 1850s in Antebellum South, um, again, when apples were hard to come by. Basic, essentially, mock apple pie contains no actual apples. In the 1930s, Ritz crackers promoted a recipe that um, called for Ritz crackers, sugar, and spices, and was printed on the side of the box. So, whew, that was a bit of a doozy, but that's all I've got for apple pie, except for this wonderfully delicious recipe coming up next. It does call for alcohol, but I... This recipe is really kind of an amalgamation of different apple pie recipes that I've come across throughout the year, um, but it is definitely my go-to. I would say the newest that, that I've added to this recipe is uh, substituting cold vodka for cold water, but honestly, it was amazing. Uh, I've never had a flakier crust and I'm never going back to using water. So this recipe calls for two pounds of apples. I kind of mixed them um, between Red Delicious and Granny Smith, but um, you could do whichever apples, just apples you had on hand. If you prefer a softer pie, just keep in mind the softer the apple um, that you use, the less um, distinctive your filling would be. Because um, the apples, you know, they mush when they cook. About um, a tablespoon of cinnamon. This sounds like a lot, but bear with me. 
about two teaspoons of cloves, fourth cup of honey, fourth cup of brown sugar, and then around about eight teaspoons of cold vodka. This will be for your crust. You'll need two and a half cups of flour as well, and we have sticks here in America, so two sticks of butter. Uh, that's 16 ounces. Uh, I don't know what the grammage is, but I'll figure that out and post it on the site. So first you're going to want to start your crust. Um, honestly, you could just throw down a pre-made crust. You could make your own crusts. Um, I did the first crust that I did in a uh, bread machine that did the dough for me. I've also done it by hand. Really, it's up to you. If you do it by hand, um, sift the flour, grater the frozen butter into it. This just makes it easier to combine uh, and create that pastry. And then just a teaspoon of vodka at a time, um, you know, until it be a dough begins to form. Cover it and set it aside while you make your filling. For your filling, you're going to want to quarter your apples and then half each quarter. I removed the skins and seeds because um, I don't like that in my pie, but it's really up to you. You could leave it, you could take it off. Um, to the apples, add the cinnamon, cloves, honey, and brown sugar and mix really well. Cover that and set that aside. Um, the honey is kind of to add like a gelling effect uh, to the filling once it begins to cook. So if, um, there's going to be water drown, drawn out of the apples. You're not going to want to pour that off. You want that. You're going to add that into the pie. So while all that sciencey goodness is happening, Press out or lay out your crust into a 9-inch pie pan or cast iron skillet. Um, take your filling, put it in the pan. Um, be careful not to overfill your pan as then it will be more difficult to get a good seal um, with your crust. Put on the top layer of pastry, press down the sides, make sure the sides are nice and sealed, and then you're going to want to cut at least two vent holes into the middle of the pie. This will help steam escape from it in a directed manner and it'll keep gapping between the top of your crust and your filling. Um, you can brush the top of the crust with about one beaten egg. It's really optional. It's just gonna give that crust a nice golden color. And then bake it at 350 for 30 minutes. Check the pie. Uh, if the crust still looks a little uh, pale, keep going. Basically, you want to bake it until your crust is golden brown and delicious. Um, I love this recipe, and there's so much room for, for error and for playing around, so really just have at, you know? Thanks for tuning in, guys. Honestly, this was such a fun episode to research and record, and I'm so glad that, you know, I'm able to, to, to
to do this thing. You know, thank you for listening. Just want to drop our social media handles real, real quick. We are now live on Facebook, and our handle is the same as on Instagram. That's at Blunder Kitchen. Um, we also have a website, BlunderKitchen.com, uh, where all of our research is posted. Um, easy links to find the podcast. Um, well, you're listening to it, so you've already found it. But if you want to share with a friend, uh, all of our recipes go up on the site. And now uh, we also have a YouTube channel, Blunder Kitchen. And those videos are posted to our Facebook page as well as linked on our site. Um, yeah, guys, thanks for thanks for tuning in. Can't wait to bring you another episode of delicious history. See ya.